Now we continue working our way through the pastoral epistles, and we are in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll be looking at 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 10. Just prior to verse 3, teach and urge these things because he's reminding young Timothy that he's a teacher of God's word and is with urgency to teach those things that the Apostle Paul has been instructing him. And now we come to verses 3 through 10. Let's briefly pray before reading. Almighty God and our Father, we, your children, humble ourselves under the authority of your holy word and ask that you will help us to understand it and to apply it to our lives. And ultimately, we pray that the Holy Spirit, who alone can take his word and apply it effectually to any heart, will do so unto our hearts. And that those who are among your people today who are observing and who do not know Christ may themselves hear of the God of truth and that they will put their faith in the Lord Jesus for the salvation of their souls for time and eternity. We know that these things with which we are dealing, though they relate to everyday matters, are indeed matters weighted for eternity. Help us to be serious about these things, joyful, and yet at the same time to approach your word with sobriety, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter chapter 6, beginning with verse 3. This is the word of God. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now remember as we come to First and Second Timothy and also to Titus, that the great concern of Paul the Apostle is to pass on the truth. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, we read, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And that's the great concern of the pastoral epistles. In other words, what we see coming through in 1 Timothy this morning and always as we look at the pastoral epistles is the burning pastoral heart of Paul the Apostle. He loves the church. He cares about the truth. And he is concerned to guard the church against falsehood and to promote the truth until Jesus comes again through his church. I remind you of that little story of Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, the great 
professor at Old Princeton Theological Seminary. He used to lean over his lectern and look at his young men, his students, and would say, young men, I want to remind you that a bad theology comes from a bad heart. Now, that is exactly what we see in this passage this morning, the relationship between sound theology and sound living and the relationship between an unsound theology and unsound living. That relationship is clear in this passage. So the first thing we want to see is Paul's description of false teachers as we come to verse 3. False teachers described. Let me remind you, he has already done this in the first chapter at length, but he picks up the theme again and he's mentioned it in various places along the way. So false teachers described, he says in verse 3, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit, and so forth. That is to say, he teaches novelty. That's the first thing about the false teacher. He teaches novelty. Maybe not everything he teaches will be novelty. That's what requires discernment on your part as you listen to those who claim to be preachers of the word. Is he actually exegeting the text? Is he faithful to the Word and to the system of doctrine contained within the Holy Scriptures? But he teaches, according to Paul, that which is different than what Paul himself is teaching. And what Paul is teaching is by divine inspiration, it is the Word of God. Not attaching himself to healthy words, literally, is the translation. It reads here in verse 3 in the ESV, Uh, sound words, uh, different doctrine that does not agree with sound words. The word there really is the word for healthy, healthy words, words that accord with godliness, that is to say, that lead to a godly life. And so if the false teacher's motives in teaching are wrong, wrong doctrine and wrong living will surface at some point. Now note the stress on the relationship between godly teaching and godly living. Unhealthy doctrine, unsound doctrine. The word here, hugiaino, means to be in good health. False teaching sickens people. False teaching poisons the soul. And we need good, sound doctrine. It is essential to our health as Christians that we have good, sound teaching. You may not know the name of William Childs Robinson. Some of you will. He is the the last of the conservative, old-school Presbyterian professors at Columbia Theological Seminary as the whole thing was going off into liberalism and the Southern Presbyterian Church with it. William Childs Robinson on one occasion was surrounded by some liberal theologians who were espousing the theology of Paul Tillich. You might know that name, very well-known liberal a liberal theologian. And of course, Paul Tillich's personal life, as is well known, was very, very immoral. William Childs Robinson, quick as a flash, looked at these liberal theologians and he says, the wish is the father of the thought. Now, some of you will recognize that that really is a shortened version of something that was said by Shakespeare, I think, in Henry IV. But the, the, the idea here is thoroughly biblical. The wish is the father of the thought. You see what William Childs Robinson was getting at. The theology of Paul Tillich was simply a result of the kind of theology he wanted so that he could live the way he wanted to live. 
The wish is the father of the doctrine. The wish is the father of the thought. There is an inseparable relationship between false teaching and false living. Catherine Jefford Shorey recently preached, you notice that I put that in quote, preached that when Paul cast the demon from the slave girl in Acts 16, he was depriving the girl of her gift of spiritual awareness. Uh, Paul was prejudiced and refuses to recognize the holy, and he tries to destroy it. And people like that are now bishops of once great churches. In chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 of 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. False teaching, false living, false living, false teaching. So the first thing we note about false teachers is they are given over to novelty. They teach those things that are contrary to the Word of God. Let me remind you that not everything they say will be false. But let me also remind you that in any good old-fashioned rat poison, it's 99% cornmeal and it's the 1% arsenic that kills the rat. Beware of the 1%. Second thing we see as we move along in the text is that false teaching stems from false motives. False motives. When we reject what is healthy, sickness results. And what is the source of this? Well, the apostle says it's pride. And so we read on in verses 4 and 5. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So he says, ultimately, the source here is pride, literally swollen with pride. He understands nothing. That is to say, of the system of doctrine contained within the Holy Scripture, he understands nothing. The false teacher is unhealthy. Notice how he says that here in verse 4. He has an unhealthy craving. Now that goes back to the healthy words of verse 3. He's contrasting the sound or healthy words with the unhealthy words and living of the false teacher that stems from pride. Pride shows in these ways, according to verses 4 and 5. And as you hear me, you can see everything is coming right from the text. First of all, pride shows in an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. Logomachia. Logos machia. It means word wars. These guys are just involved in playing with words. They're people who twist the truth and who make major points of trivial matters. They are given over to envy. Spite and ill will, dissension, they bring discord and division. Slander, literally the word here is blasphemies. But in Greek, the word blasphemy is, um, has a broader range than it does in English. Not only those things that might be said against God, but those things that also might be insults toward men are blasphemies or slander. Evil suspicions, that is, casting suspicion in teaching and conversation, especially on sound leadership, Constant friction, literally rubbing against one another, is what the word means. 
Now, people of God, this is certainly not produced by the Holy Spirit. On the contrary, it is the result, he says in verse 5, of a depraved mind. When you find someone who is given over to unhealthy craving for controversy, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction, that person has a depraved mind, says Paul the Apostle. And he is involved in false teaching and false living. I will tell you something as a pastor. I don't know if this will be a surprise to you or not. When someone on rare occasion has come into our congregation with these sorts of characteristics, my first prayer is that they will believe and repent. When and if they don't, I'm glad when they're gone. Is that harsh? No. It's love for you. Because I care about you. There's always someone, unsuspecting person, perhaps not well taught, for whatever reason, who is willing to follow such a person. It causes dissension and strife in the body. And let me tell you, there is so little time and so little energy. I'm glad when they're gone. Pride that shows an unhealthy craving for controversy in all of these characteristics. But the motive also that is underlying false teaching is, at least often, a craving for gain. So we read in verse 5, Constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. They use religion as a way to get rich. You remember in Acts, the 8th chapter, that there is this Simon the magician. And this is what we read of him in Acts 8.18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Well, that's the false teacher, at least most often. He's concerned with gain through the use of religion. Now, Paul is not saying that money is unimportant. Paul is saying that often a leading characteristic of the false teacher is a craving for wealth. And so we read in verse 6, Now there is great gain in godliness. With contentment, there really is great gain. If you're satisfied with Christ, whether you have little, whether you have much, true contentment and ultimate satisfaction do not stem from money, but from a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, the apostle says, let's consider this in light of birth and death. And he goes on to say in verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Now you heard that this morning in the passage that was read from Job, Job 1.21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, which the Apostle Paul surely has in his mind. Or perhaps Ecclesiastes 5.15, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. You brought nothing into the world, and you surely are going to take nothing out of the world. And so in verse 6, there is indeed gain in godliness, but not as the world counts gain. The truly godly person is not preoccupied with the wealth of this world. He's not unconcerned with it. But he doesn't live for it. Godliness with contentment is the characteristic of the believer because our treasure in heaven is our ultimate preoccupation, Christ himself. And this is how we learn contentment. He goes on to say in verse 8, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. 
Now the Apostle Paul's own commentary on this is in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me, he says to the church at Philippi. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, whether I have much, whether I have little, I'm content. Hendrickson well says, the desire to meet the needs of the body is not criticized. It is the yearning for material riches as if these could satisfy the soul that is here condemned. There can be two approaches to wealth. Uh, Those who have little can envy those who have much, uh, living for what they do not have. Those who have much can live for what they do have rather than living for Christ and being God's philanthropist in this world. You remember the rich man in the parable in Luke 12 who gained material goods and rather than being God's philanthropist and giving to those who have need out of a full heart or being careful with his money to invest it in ways that would promote the kingdom, he simply said, I will gather more. I'll build bigger barns. And God said to him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. He didn't take any of it with him. Now the third thing we see as we move on in the text is the fruit of pride and craving gain. The fruit of pride and craving gain. Well, it's utterly devastating. You see in verse 9 he goes on to say, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And he stresses here the desire. Now, in the Greek language, there are two different words that are synonyms for will, bulamai and thelo. Bulamai is, shall we say, the stronger word. Bulamai gives the idea of a deliberate exercise of the will, and that's the word that is used here. And what Paul is saying is they are bent on gain. In their pride and craving, they are bent on gain. And Paul warns Timothy against this vice grip. It's a trap. That's why in chapter 3, verse 3, not a lover of money is a characteristic of the elder. In verse 9, in the Greek text, there is alliteration. There are a series of Ps. Uh, Verse 9 reads, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. But there are a series of Ps. And when you see it, you know the Apostle Paul is using alliteration because he wants you to listen up. Now, Hendrickson has done a very good job of taking the Greek and putting it into English with the Ps. Those who desire to be opulent precipitate themselves into evil promptings and perilous pitfalls and into numerous precarious passions. Now that's a good stab at what happens in the Greek text, and that's what's happening here. The Apostle Paul says, listen up, you need to hear this, hence the peas. So what's the, the fruit of this prideful craving that underlies really false teaching but also can be found in our own hearts to one degree or another. 
Well, in verses 9 and 10, we have a list. The fruit is falling into all sorts of temptations, and the tense is continuous. Continually falling into temptations. Falling into a trap. Falling into many senseless and harmful desires. In other words, lusts. Think about it. Uh, The person who really craves money is the person who's going to fall into the trap of wanting more power, uh, dishonesty, theft, often sexual sin, and the list goes on. So learn this if you allow one sin in your life, believer. If you say, that one I can just leave alone, you're going to make that a pet sin. If you allow one sin into your life, it's going to open the door for others. It's inevitable. It always happens. Believe and repent every day. Learn this. And then in the list, plunging into ruin and destruction. You see that in verse 9. But those who desire to be rich and tempta- uh, rich fall into temptation, into, the, into snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, and plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, this is interesting. He uses the word here, buthidzo, which is the word here for plunge. It's used another place in the uh, New Testament in Luke chapter 5, verse 7, when the disciples had toiled all night and they were unable to catch fish and Jesus told them to cast their nets and they caught so many that it about sank the boat. That's the word that's used here, buthidzo. Uh, In other words, if you crave money, crave these things that are attendant upon false teaching, it will sink you down. If you are dominated by craving for material gain, repent immediately because it will sink you down. And then it leads, according to verse 10, to wandering from the faith. Look at it. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so you wander from the faith. You're concerned more with the materials that you can gain rather than knowing Christ and communing with Him and serving Him and His kingdom. The root love of money brings the fruit of all kinds of evil. And it causes pain. Pierced themselves. Verse 10, look at it. Pierced themselves with many pangs. They bring pain on themselves, sorrow, grief. Peripero, it means to pierce completely, to pierce utterly. Hendrickson says something very fine here. Among these pangs are unrest, boredom, dissatisfaction, gloom, envy. In the pocket of a rich man who had just committed suicide was found $30,000 And a letter which read in part, I have discovered during my life that piles of money do not bring happiness. I am taking my life because I can no longer stand the solitude and boredom. When I was an ordinary workman in New York, I was happy. Now that I possess millions, I am infinitely sad and prefer death. Well, that's what Paul says about false teachers about love for gain, about true contentment. Let me bring you a series of thoughts, some final thoughts. As we think through these verses, notice that he brings it up again in verses 17 through 19. Just notice what it says. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, 
nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot say Jesus is Lord and crave things in this world. Now, things aren't bad. God made a material world. We're not Gnostics. Materials are good. God made them. We're talking about where the heart is focused, folks. You can't serve two masters. Either your heart is focused on Christ or someone or something else. You say Jesus is Lord. Well, is he? Have you bowed to his lordship truly in your life? And then as we think through this text, notice that false teaching is usually associated with craving for gain, and that should be a warning to you. It really should. Sometimes it's egregious and should be easily detected. For example, come over to my study one day and I'll show you a prayer cloth. No, I don't use it. I got it in the mail. Uh, you look at it and it's a prayer cloth and, you know, it's, uh, it's supposed to be saturated with prayer. And if you send it back to them, then you'll get what you want. And there are all these testimonies that are printed on this page saying, you know, I got $10,000. We bought a new car. We got this and that. We made a list of what we wanted God to do for us. And after we got this prayer cloth, he did it. Well, I really do. I have it over there. I can show it to you. And unhappily, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are misled by that nonsense. And the thing that really bothers me with these televangelist types, let me tell you, what really bothers me is that when people who don't know anything about Christianity think about Christianity, they think that's what it is. That's really distressing. But it's not. It's false teaching. So sometimes it's very egregious. There was a lady in our congregation many, many, many years ago. Most of you would not even know who she was, and I'm not mentioning her name. She's in heaven now. She had an open heart and a generous heart and wanted to help the kingdom, and yet she knew something wasn't right with her giving, and she talked with me about it because she was giving all this money to televangelists. And I was able to point out these televangelists to whom she was giving her money, these, these people were teaching false doctrine. So she had to grow in her understanding of the truth. But learn it. False teaching and this egregious desire for gain usually go hand in hand. Manipulative people who will use you by their false teaching in order to gain for themselves money and riches, power, prestige, what have you. So you see the importance of doctrine. I am always amazed as I survey the evangelical world today and see what little emphasis there is placed upon true teaching, and very few warn against false doctrine, and yet it's everywhere in the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, and especially in Paul, and particularly in the pastoral epistles, these warnings against false teaching. Life and doctrine are inextricable. What you believe, if you really believe it, will transform your life one way or the other. And if you really believe the truth and are committed to the truth, 
it will not remain simply an intellectual apprehension. It will extend to your emotions, your affections, and to your will. There is an inseparable relationship between what you believe and how you live. That's why Paul says to Timothy, the young pastor, in chapter 4, watch your life and doctrine closely. He says that to the pastor, he says it to me, and now, by the grace of God, I repeat it to you. Watch your life and doctrine closely. But there's something else here that I think is underlying what we read in the passage, and that is that the Apostle Paul has a place in his life for intolerance. I surely understand that the great heresy today in our culture is to... um, is to fail to be tolerant. Now, if you mean by tolerant that we want to be warm and accepting of anyone and everyone, no matter who he may be, I'm right with you. If you mean by tolerance coexist, that the cross can be placed next to other religious symbols, that we can say, well, Christianity is good for me, but may not be for you, if that's what you mean by it, then if you take that position, you have radically compromised Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me, comes to the Father, but by me. There is only one way to heaven. That's the name of Jesus. Only one Savior, only one mediator. And Paul is radically intolerant when it comes to that. Amazing to me how broad the Apostle Paul is on some issues, how, how tolerant he is, how he will permit certain things that even surprise me sometimes as I read in the book of Acts that were not for him matters of principle. But when it's a matter of the gospel, a matter of principle, he is radically intolerant. Just read Galatians 1. If anyone preaches any other gospel than that which I have proclaimed, let him be anathema. Let him be damned. That's what Paul says. So there's an intolerance here of false teachers because he loves Christ and his church and he loves the truth. I can't help but read to you a quotation from J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle was a 19th century Anglican bishop who loved Christ and the truth. And he said this, Christian love does not consist in approving everybody's religious opinions. Here is another most serious and growing delusion. There are many who pride themselves on never pronouncing others mistaken, whatever views they may hold. Your neighbor may be an atheist or a Buddhist or a Roman Catholic or a Mormonite, a deist or a skeptic, a mere formalist or a thorough antinomian. But the love of many says that you have no right to think him wrong. If he's sincere, then it is uncharitable to think unfavorably of his spiritual condition. From such love may I ever be delivered. At this rate, the apostles were wrong in going out to preach to the Gentiles. At this rate, there is no use in missions. At this rate, we had better close our Bibles and shut up our churches. At this rate, everybody is right and nobody is wrong. At this rate, everybody is going to heaven and nobody is going to hell. Such love is a monstrous monstrous caricature. To say that all are equally right in their opinions though their opinions flatly contradict one another, to say that all are equally in the way to heaven, though their doctrinal sentiments are as opposite as black and white, this is not scriptural love. Love like this pours contempt on the Bible and talks as if God had not given us a written standard of truth. 
Love like this confuses all our notions of heaven and would fill it with discordant, inharmonious rabble. True love does not think everybody right in doctrine. True love cries, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 1 John 4, 1. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. 2 John 1, 10. Intolerance. In other words, I believe that texts such as the one that we have read this morning call upon us Christians to develop a deathless passion for the truth. A deathless passion for the truth. Now perhaps there's someone here this morning and you do not yet believe in the Lord Jesus You've not trusted him as your Lord and Savior. And perhaps you've thought, well, nobody can know what truth is anyway. And everything will be all right in the end, I suppose, because I do good things for my neighbor. And Well, listen, God is truth. Truth is an attribute of God. God is truth. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christ is truth. And so if you do not know God and you do not love Christ, then you do not love the truth. And you can come to know the truth by knowing Jesus Christ. John Bentley tells this story, comes from Philip Jensen. Philip Jensen told of an incident which happened to a Christian lorry driver in the United States of America. This is a a Brit that's writing. This brother's vehicle broke down near the home of a millionaire The very rich man kindly gave the driver a good breakfast. When it became clear that the lorry driver was a Christian, the wealthy man said, I'm an agnostic. The millionaire's wife was a little embarrassed by the word which her husband had used in front of such an ordinary man. So the millionaire asked the lorry driver if he knew what the word agnostic meant. The lorry driver said, Do you want the dictionary definition or the truth? The millionaire was caught off balance by this reply, but he said, I'll have the truth. So the Christian said, an agnostic is someone who deep down in his heart knows that there is a God to whom he is answerable, but pretends that he doesn't know so that he can live the kind of life he wants to. The rich man hung his head and admitted that that was exactly his position. He pretended to be an intellectual who was far above the claims of Christ, yet he knew that one day he would have to stand before the judgment seat of the Lord. Now, I'm sure that that describes somebody here. And you need Christ. You need the truth. You need to bring your life into conformity to the standard of His will. But you begin by simple faith in Jesus. How are you saved? By coming to this one who is the truth who died on a cross for sinners, who rose from the dead, and by laying down the weapons of your warfare and simply trusting in Him. People of God, true doctrine, true life come from Christ. And God's people said...